GPT-4 has just been released and its possibilities seem endless. So this is a new tool which creates higher productivity, higher efficiency and higher quality, hopefully. And now these systems could even turn natural language into code. You could have a transcription of a meeting note. You could feed that into generative AI and from that actually get the use cases. This week, I'm speaking to Society's very own CTO of Data and AI, Joachim Wahlquist, and we're going to explore the AI systems that could create potentially faultless code. Welcome back to Playing With Reality with me, Menno van Dorn, a podcast from Society, the home for technology talent. As ever, I'm joined by my co-host, Tia Nikolic. She's a data scientist and one of our AI specialists at Sojiti. Hi, Tia. Hi, Mano. And as ever, I'm very happy to be joining you again as co-host. How are you doing? What do you want to speak about? <laughs> well, of course, I want to speak about uh, GPT-4. Maybe you can say whether you're also happy about the release of it. What was your first initial reaction when you heard the news? Yeah, I'm, I wasn't surprised at all that it came out with all of the competition that we're seeing currently in the market with all of the large language models. It's like a rat's race, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it was uh, expected. So I didn't get to try it yet. I'm still in the queue, mm. unfortunately. Me too. <laughs> But you've, you've seen the examples, haven't you? So what do you make of it? Is it early to tell or what, what do you make of it? I think uh, the idea that's very interesting here to introduce to the listeners and also for us to discuss is the idea that of multimodality of this model. It sounds a bit technical, but I will mm -hmm. explain it. So uh, the uh, GPT-4 can actually take different kinds of inputs as prompts now. And this is extremely exciting for me and for everyone else, of course, because now you can prompt it with an image even and say, oh, can you explain to me in layman's terms what this image is? And then you can just feed it an image from a research paper, for example. Yeah, I think that was a great example of these balloons up in the sky. There was a picture feed it to, to uh, GPT-4. And the question was, what will happen if I cut the rope? And oh, then it yes. actually understands that the, the balloons will go up in the sky. So this kind of magic, I would say, <laughs> Is going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah, but today we're going to talk about the power of this version of GPT in the context of creating code. So Tia, what do you know about how artificial intelligence has been used to write code? Actually, I've been researching and working on this for quite some time. So uh, the models that are behind uh, large language models, such as GPT-3, 4, 2, all of the GPT models, uh, they're transformer-based models. They actually can capture the sequence of natural language, like human language, like English that we're speaking in currently, but also they can capture the sequence of code. So ever since uh, GPT uh, came out, this has been a point of research. So it's it was really interesting and exciting back in 2021 when OpenAI released Codex, which was a fine-tuned GPT-3 model that could generate code. And then we all jumped on the bandwagon and uh, requested to use it in Visual Studio as a plugin uh, because also it was connected to GitHub as co-pilot, if you remember. And uh, 
it was amazing to see what this model could do. So this is for me very exciting because as a developer, you can, of course, use it if you're stuck with a logical problem and you want to code it. But then also you can use it to improve maintenance of your code. And this is where it's really, really exciting and interesting for me, because these are the things that uh, really no coder wants to do, like writing unit tests. They just want to release their code into the world and for it to be used. So can you tell me what all of this boils down to? So what's your conclusion? Yes. So again, the power of it. So using it for maintainability, for uh, almost peer review, kind mm -hmm. of. So you that's can actually take that's one. Improving the documentation and comments in your code. That's also yep. a very important one. Maybe even creating designs. Uh, so what I see uh, in the future is uh, GPT-5, 6 coming out and they can actually give you an answer in form of an image, not just text. So that can mm -hmm. also be but then we have to really be careful as coders, developers to not over rely on it. We still need to keep yeah. that human part. So it is going to uh, leave our hands free to do more human-like things, to be more critical of the software we're developing, of the model, of these ethical issues. Yeah. Over-reliance is a big risk. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for the great discussion, Mano. But I'm mm -hmm. really wondering who you are speaking with this week. Well, today I sat down with someone at Society, you probably know, Joachim Gualquist. Uh, he has been with us for the past six years, and he recently moved into his new role as the CTO of data and AI. I think he has a wealth of experience across the AI space from being a developer himself to helping our clients to implement these technologies and to bring about rapid innovation. We started off by talking about GPT-4, what else can we do, of course, and how AI is already being used by coders worldwide. So hi, Joachim. Hello, Manuel. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm also happy that I'm here to talk with you about coding and AI. And my first question to you would be, obviously, are you a coder? Well, that's a tricky question, actually. Uh, I identify myself as a coder because I started mm. when I was something around 10 years old and I went on for 20 years. But uh, nowadays, uh, sadly, I'm not uh, hands-on anymore. Uh, maybe GPT-4 will help you to become a better coder. I because, hope. Yeah, that's the news of the town, of course. So you're on top of it, I know. So could you already explain or tell us what the difference is from the uh, GPT 3.5 and this one for coders? That's also an interesting question because we we can see that the performance in GPT-4 has increased a lot. If we look at the, the complexity of type of questions you could uh, ask and the accuracy, in, they have benchmarked quite a lot, uh, like something 30, 35 different benchmarks of, of different intelligent tests. And the the answers has increased in accuracy a lot, but there is not much information on how much it has increased for coders, actually. Mm -hmm. And they still do a remark, a quite clear one, uh, that you shouldn't trust the code that is generated out just like that. You still need to go through and you need to make sure it's it's accurate and it's not uh, some uh, malicious code in there, but it will most certainly be more um, more accurate and, and can do more complex tasks. So you've dived into the, the new version of GPT and uh, have you found any new functionality that could be of interest for coders? Yes, yes, definitely, because it has been more 
more trained, right? And I mean, it's it's smarter and more intelligent. But another capability is actually that you now can use images as input. Before mm-hmm. it was text input and text output. Now they added, so we can also have images combined with text. So we can take a photo of some uh, sketchy notes and saying, I would like to have a web page looking like this with this functionality. And it will actually interpretate the image together with your instruction in text and being able to generate the code for such a web page. Or maybe saying, I need five versions of a web page looking somewhat like this. So you will get five different mockups, which you could show to a potential business and say, which one do you like the most? And then you have a base of continuation. Okay, but let's take a step back now to look at the the broader picture. What do you think are the main areas we should look at when we talk about AI-generated code? Yeah, I think think the most important stuff to understand is that now AI can actually generate code and not only like one language, it can do more or less every language which is out there. So you can write something, say, hey, I want a function that uh, outputs this data doing this, have some kind of logic into it. You you, you describe it with your words Mm -hmm. and the AI can generate that code for you in any language. So that's the most important features. Then, of course, understanding code, it can also help you to be a kind of a co-pilot, finding bugs, structure your code, rewrite it to get some some better uh, structure or name conventions or, or what could could be. I think different other scenarios as well could be that you could actually go from a very like normal written text to functional requirements, so like a pre-step of coding. Yeah. And then if you have your code, you could ask this function also to create test cases for it. Different flavors of the fact that we now have generative AI that can understand language and understand and generate code. I see a future where two people are sitting at the bar, one taking a pen and, you know, write something down about the website and puts it on GPT and bam, there you exactly. are. It's coded. Yeah. And I think that future is actually here now. And then exactly how advanced it can be, what details you can drive, uh, draw on that, uh, that piece of paper that need to be find out. Uh, but the capabilities of going from the paper to actual code. It's now existing GPT-4. As they say, the devil is in the details. So Tia, Joachim and I talked about co-pilots and you talked about over-reliance, but a co-pilot actually is someone you should rely on. Should we use another word? <laughs> oh, yeah, but it's really funny that you're using this term because GitHub uh, gave uh, the name of co-pilot to their plugin for coding. So they really want to tell you that this is your helper and that you shouldn't really just uh, leave it to be the only pilot, let's say it like that. So it's your right hand and it's going to help you, but not to the to the point where you're over relying on it. And what do I mean by this is like just writing a prompt to the model and just copy pasting or using that code as is, not testing it, not making sure that it's uh, robust enough and that it actually does the task as you would expect it to. So you still need to test it out. You still need to, you just use it as a helper. Okay. So if we, if we take this co-pilot and open the brain of this person sitting next to you in the plane, what will we... <laughs> 
what are we finding in inside his head? So how how does he operate? That's a, a great question and <laughs> very nicely, mm, <laughs> very nicely searching. put. <laughs> so uh, we can also tie it back to translation to make it a bit more digestible. We keep on with the medical terms mm. here. I really love it. <laughs> So if you have a Dutch input for Google Translate or ChatGPT or whatever sort of language model we're talking about, it actually can give you uh, an English translation to it. And how does it do it? It actually uh, learned in its training data which Dutch words are mapped to which English words. Mm-hmm. So the same thing applies to code. So we have an enormous body of data, gigabytes, gigabytes, terabytes that's scraped from uh, the web, from GitHub, from Stack Overflow, coders favorite website with questions and answers. And then all of that input is used and mapped to specific output. So you have uh, questions uh, like, oh, how do I... Um, solve this specific issue, how do I code this logic? And then you have uh, answers, for example, in Stack Overflow or on GitHub in repositories in forms of code. So then you actually can uh, train AI to see these patterns, see these connections, and later on use it. So, uh, for example, in your day-to-day life, you could have a function like, I want to apply an if-else logic. Uh, If a number is odd, output a text saying it's an odd number. And... GPT, GPT-4, is going to give you code in any language uh, based on that. So it's quite interesting. Okay. Okay, now that we know how these models work, I want to ask you, what's next? Well, next to your nice words about the co-pilot, I wanted to see how AI actually is being used, not just by coders, but more in a, let's call it a workflow sense, changing natural language into code. So what do you make of this invention of AI doing code nowadays? I mean, back from this early 60s of the PC to where we are now. So the way I see on this is that we enhanced the way, or we, we matured the way that we can code. So we are on a higher and higher level of coding. So if you start with assembly, it's very down to the bits and bytes, really. And then you have a lot of different coding language like C, C++, and C Sharp, and whatnot, which make it simpler and simpler. You you don't need to write as much. You don't need to control every detail. You don't need to know everything about how computer works, how the memory works. You could basically do that with simpler version of coding. And I would say this AI-generated code is the next step on that. You could actually now create your code simpler. And with that, you could do it with higher productivity. You already gave it a try to describe how it works, but could you could you maybe explain how it will be used in organizations in a more workflow sense? So the, can you take us through the steps? Yeah, so th- there are multiple steps, right? So first, you've need to understand what is you want to code, what is the app about, what is the use case about, and, and get that into some kind of functionality specifications. Mm-hmm. So you could have a transcri- transcription of a meeting note. You could feed that into generative AI, a large language model, and from that actually get the use cases very clearly spe- specified. Then you could take these use cases and ask the generative AI to to basically generate the code for that. And you will probably, as of to now, you will get some kind of good structure. You will get some base logic that you need for that use case. 
but you probably will need to tailor it. You need to look at it and make sure it's uh, it's actually what you yeah. ask for. You need to change it a bit around. And then the next thing will be quality assurance, right? You need to have sure. the test cases. Yeah. We need to talk about quality, and uh, we, we will later on. But first, I, you were using a lot of wood and could and these kind of words, which I think means that we are uh, in a very early stage of describing how things will go. Am I right? Yes, definitely. So as I said in the beginning, this is an early stage of this development. It's a couple of months, so at least as most a year. I think Codex was released somewhere in fall of 2021, right? This is not fully matured yet. Uh, a lot of developers is there now and trying these things out, understanding how it works and how we should use it for for enhance our, our work. So OpenAI's Codex we're talking about for people that don't know what that exactly is and means. Can you explain in simple words what OpenAI's Codex is? So Codex is a part of the function that we see now in ChatGPT. Behind the scene intelligence of, of this functionality is something called GPT-3. It's an AI model, we could say, which understands text and has learned from vast amount of text, basically 60% of internet, so a lot of text. And on top of that, they also train this model to understand code. And those two combinations together, it was codesic, codexes. So it understands text, it understands code, and can generate both, both text and code. So how does ChatGPT or other open source AI generators get their knowledge from? What codex or the fine-tuned model of GPT-3 that could generate code is trained on. It's basically code snippet from internet. It's not like it's only GitHub or only some other library of code. It's it's probably a lot of different uh, libraries that they have got hold of, which is open. And part of the, these libraries are so created on, under an open source license. And now currently there's a class action lawsuit against OpenAI and Microsoft claiming, I believe, $12.7 billion because the code that has been used is created under GPL, open source license. So would it be possible that we are going into a scenario where you're not allowed to use these code and it, uh, this sort of intelligence is seen as a theft. Of course, that scenario could be there. Now, I think we, we can't jump to conclusions because that process is nearly finished and it would take a lot of time. And I don't think we have a possibility to, to judge that from, from the side as well. But of course, there is a possibility. Uh, now, looking at the terms and condition, what Microsoft and OpenAI claims it's the result coming from these models. They are the property of a user if they pay for it. As of now, uh, we shouldn't be afraid of but what will happen in the future and this big lawsuit, we, we simply don't know, right? What do you think, Thea, is going to happen? Will taking natural language into code be something that a lot of uh, big organizations uh, will actually do? Yes, I think uh, they will definitely have to do it because the developers working there 
are going to use it. That would be my answer to, yeah. Absolutely. So possibilities are endless. Joachim also talked about it. Uh, there's a lot of different uh, things that can be used for now with GPT-4 being multimodal. You can even show it a diagram or a website, and then it can give you HTML code back to create that website. So these possibilities and this power is too big to not actually use it in an organization. So it's going to happen. Yeah, and it's not organizations that are going to decide it. It's actually the coders, aren't it? Yes, definitely. Yeah. And yeah, I yeah. know that coders are already using this. Uh, for example, Codex, we already spoke about it. We spoke about the Copilot, GitHub. This yeah. is the model that's underneath it. And I told you we already were um, waiting in line two years ago, a year and a half ago to use it. And of course... Um, we made sure we don't use it for commercial purposes uh, because we know uh, that that's a legal issue. But it is something that really excited us. So coders drive companies forward. They push them forward. They develop it. So based on their passion, this is definitely going to happen. And what about this legal issue that I talked about with uh, Joachim? So what do you make of it as people saying they're just stealing the intellectual property or the knowledge of the best coders in the world, like you, Tia, and turn <laughs> it into a machine. That's a great compliment. Thanks, mm -hmm. Menno. Using it uh, yeah, like that, it ties back to uh, the generated visual art copyright issue. We already yep. spoke about this, even when I was a guest in your podcast in last season. Yeah, this this is an, an ethical issue. This is a copyright issue. You can argue that. Uh, I'm a bit more concerned uh, next to the intellectual property because th this is already, as I mentioned before, bodies of code from GitHub. These are open repositories. They're not private. So you're already putting them under a specific license. So then there's no issues there because you already opened your code. So uh, it can be ex made explicit. I'm a bit more worried about private information leaking because maybe a coder forgot to delete a password or some sensitive information before committing it to a public repository, even mm -hmm. if it's under an MIT license, for example. Okay, Tia, I think we should go back to Joachim to hear some more about the bigger questions. Like, is he worried about where this technology is going and what it could do to the coding industry. Okay, we, or actually you, have described the engine. So how it works, what you can do with it. And that raises a tons of questions, of course. Also a lot of questions about the quality of the whole thing and how dependent we will be on these new AI-generated codes. So now, could we say that we have opened Pandora's box of AI, and it will double and double and double. What do you make of the quality? Should we be worried about the quality and come together and talk about it with all the engineers? I definitely think we, we should, not because we need to be so worried, because we have seen these kind of changes many times in history, and there is always a lot of questions to be asked, which needs their answers and, and people need to come on board and understand the journey. And so I think for the sake of creating that arena to discuss this, to create this common understanding of where we are, where we are heading and how we should see this new technology, that's important. Uh, but still, I think this new capability, which AI and generative AI, which can generate code actually is, we shouldn't be too afraid because I, I think 
the developers will still be there. I don't think we very soon will see fully automated generated applications or software where is no human intervention. I don't see that in near future. So this is a new tool which enhance and create higher productivity, higher efficiency and higher quality, hopefully. But of course, we need to discuss and understand this, right? I think you're very innovative or like innovation. I'm not sure whether the quality assurers are as optimistic as you are. You know, let's see and how it goes. But uh, I can understand when you're saying, okay, there's a, a human on the other side. But what can we tell about the quality of the software itself? And it's completely generated. How good is it? So that's still to be seen, I would say. We, we, we see that the, the code generated it works, it's correctly written, uh, a, a developer understand it and can use it. Uh, but going from there to actually build a fully functional system end to end with everything needed with integrations and data, we are not there yet. It will probably come, but I think there still need to be some more of assisting coding that you have a developer which can use this functionality to increase the productivity but to really build a fully functional system, that's not where we are as of today, at least. So tell me more about Microsoft Power Platform because Pandora's box uh, is open and we call it uh, OpenAI ChatGPT. Power Platform, that's uh, started earlier on. So what can you tell us about no-code, low-code, and how different is it from what we can actually do now with these open source tools. So first of all, the open source tools or the open AI services we see today, they could do so many different things and it's more about what you will use them for and you can stitch a full software together as a developer. But in Power Platform, it's it's, it's a very capable tool, uh, more of a citizen developer tool, right? And in Power Platform, there is actually functionality to write code from text. So you can do a description of what you would like to happen and Power Platform will generate that code for you. And that generation of code is actually done by OpenAI Codex. So in the background in Power Platform, mm -hmm. this Codex functionality and basically GPT-3 is part of the functionality. And it has been for us for quite some time. So what's, what's the big fuss? So why are we now talking about, and everybody's excited of creating code, whereas uh, Microsoft Power Platform already had these capabilities for a long time. I think ChatGPT opened up our eyes, right? 30th mm -hmm. of November, 2022 was the day that the world got to know that AI is here for real and it works. It's not for niche companies that could spend a lot of budget into some research and build AI functionality. It's actually spread and available at the fingertips of your keyboard, basically. And with that, all kind of businesses understood that now we can do things with AI. The questions start to come. What can we use it for? What is it for my business, my sector? And with that interest created, the developers and the whole community of developers also understood that, okay, this function actually can generate code. What can we do with that? But the capabilities has been there for some years back. Actually, the GPT-3 functionality, which could generate code, it was launched in May 2020. So it's been around. Maybe the difference is, I think the difference also, yeah, what you're saying that you don't need Power Platform anymore. 
it's just for everyone. So the democratization of AI is the thing that uh, makes everyone so excited, I would say. Yeah, everyone can actually try it now and see that it works. So we can actually see that creating code is being democratized. But the, the question behind it is, what does that mean? Yes, democratization of code, also tying it back to uh, hyperscalers like Microsoft, Power Platform. Um, it's it's very important because we can see low code really helped uh, organizations implement standardized, already tested functions, models, so they don't have to redo a bunch of steps. Like why reinvent the wheel? Why should every company do it themselves and um, kind of have these... Um, sparse resources all over the place when we can have a centralized system that's tested based on industry standards and then also open it so people can use it and democratize it. So that's the kind of like accessibility of very uh, complex IT uh, or code, IT systems or code. That's something that's uh, really important that that really uh, helped uh, accelerate adoption of AI Mm. and uh, RPA, Robotic Process Automation in the past few years. Yeah, so democratization can mean opening up as a sort of policy when you do code, but it can also mean everybody is being able to code. So the the, the amount of people. Absolutely. And it's funny that you said, I'm not a coder, you learn code through Coursera. So I have this fantasy of how people learn to code in the future by using OpenAI. So what what what's your fantasy? How you learned code from Coursera, but can you imagine a different kind of education system where people learn how to code in the future? Definitely, it's a great point of discussion because I think the educa- education is currently being impacted by uh, GPT, ChatGPT. People are using it to write essays, code, Mm -hmm. etc., learn more things, which is great. And also, I think it's going to be even more impacted in the future because the possibilities are almost endless. Like you can have your own personal tutor. You can have also uh, specific teachers that are catered towards specific types of people. Also, you can have increased accessibility through that as well. So it's it's really an exciting area of application for Mm. uh, generative AI, I think. Uh, So I want to ask you finally, what did you finish speaking with Joachim about? Well, I finished off with joking by making some predictions, actually. Oh, exciting. <laughs> Let's look at some of the future scenarios. And I'd like to provoke a little bit and also see whether you can come up with more negative scenarios, maybe, or things that we should be scared of. But let's see. So what will coding AI unlock in the future for the good, would you say? So for the good, I believe that we will be more productive. We will Hmm. gain quality because we can focus our limited time and brain power to what's really matter. Uh, And then we can focus on being creative. So basically finding what type of scenarios, use case, what should we create, not actually work on creating it. And then of course, spending the time and energy on making sure it works as it should and have the right quality. Uh, and that's, yeah, my, my positive side of me believes that this technology will actually help us in that journey. So we will build better stuff. That's what you're saying. Yeah, better and more. Yeah, better and more. Okay, perfect. But a negative side of this is, of course, that people that want bad, 
they want to somehow exploit this functionality, they would have a lower threshold of doing that because now they could create code without having those advanced skills. So I think we will see more hackers uh, as we will see more like programmers, which is more on the good side. They will also have more programmers, which is on the, the bad side. We try to exploit this and maybe create fraud, fool people, earn money from it, uh, or even worse, of course, there could be a lot of applications of creating software, which is, is for bad. I think the $1 million question about the whole thing of generating code by AI is, of course, what will coding in AI's ultimate impact be on jobs? That's the bigger question, right? Yeah. My, my thinking about this, uh, personal thinking, of course, is that if we look back and look at other big changes of um, technology coming into play, we, we could take the steam machine or electricity or robotics into manufacturing. If we go to a manufacturer today in the shop floor, there is a lot of people, right? They are maybe not doing the work, the hands-on work anymore, but they are still there, making sure everything works as it should and stitching all the pieces together. And my belief is that it will be somewhat same uh, when it comes to coding and software developer, that maybe we as uh, coders will not be the one writing all the code. Maybe we will ha have these functions to help us do that faster. But to create the bigger solution and make sure it actually aligns with the use case and be creative about the use case and stitch everything together so it actually works, I think that will demand a lot of effort and that needs to be done by humans. Mm -hmm. So I I'm not very afraid of that it will change a lot in terms of that we will have a lot of employments around developers. So your crystal ball is saying it will actually grow the industry, there will be more jobs instead of less jobs because that of the efficiency. Be. Yeah. I would like to try as a sort of final question to predict your future, Joachim. Now that you've seen all these things happening in coding, wouldn't you like to go back in time and become a coder again with all these opportunities of creating more and better code? It should be like uh, a child in a uh, a candy store for you. Of course. I actually been thinking about this a couple of times only the last uh -huh. months. It's time consuming to code. You have some idea, you have something you want to create. And then it takes time basically. And you need to keep up with how to do, how to write um, new types of code. Now probably uh, I if I still be a hands-on coder, I will be in Python. Mm -hmm. I need to learn a new language, stepping away from the old ones. And now that's possible, right? Uh, and it will be much easier. The threshold is much lower. So maybe I will start again. Okay, thank you, Joachim. Thank you. Tia, what do, what do you think? What's the optimistic future scenario for how AI will be used by coders? 
yeah, but coders can use it to educate themselves on how to code better. Exactly. Or even how to code in general, have like specific course uh, material for themselves that's catered to them, their learning um, uh, rates, all that. So some people are mu- much more quick with coding while others are a bit slower. They want more visuals, etc. So this can really help them. But then if we're talking about already media to senior coders, uh, what can really, uh, what AI can really help them with is, again, to tie it back to my first point, what, which we discussed in the beginning of this episode, it is non-biased testing, for example, better code maintenance, accelerated peer reviews. And of course, when you have your hands free from all of these mundane uh, things, you can be better at collaboration, better at creativity, more critical about how the software is deployed and how it's going to affect the end users. So. Oh, it sounds fantastic. <laughs> but what can we learn from the pessimistic scenario? Shall I give you my version first? Yes, definitely. I'm really curious. <laughs> well, it's not a bad, you know, not that bad, but I'm not sure whether people will want a teacher next to them. Specifically, when you do code, you want to figure out the puzzle yourself. So, so maybe a pessimistic story, pessimistic scenario could be coding will not be fun anymore. That's a good point. This again ties back to over reliance. So, if you're using these models to actually completely solve the puzzle, the logic, and it's it's not going to work. And this really can quickly turn into a pessimistic scenario. What's your pessimistic scenario? Uh, it ties back to being over-reliant to the system, using it to solve the issue completely. And I also, because again, I'm visual, so I like to tie it back to the generation of images and videos for human creativity. It can't be suffocated. So we need to let people do be creative, solve issues, create uh, art, as they be artists. So if we try to suffocate that part by applying it in business, it's going to, again, turn very quickly into a pessimistic scenario. So we still need to remain creative, human, and use it as a helper, not as your senior developer and your peer reviewer. Nicely said. That's all for today. Thanks so much to you for listening. And thanks to Joachim and Tia. If you enjoyed this episode and want to let us know, please do get in touch on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find us at Sojeti. And don't forget to subscribe and review Playing With Reality on your favorite podcast app, as it really helps others find our show. In two weeks, we'll be returning with an episode which explores how AI is being used in more sinister context by fraudsters and the people trying to stop them. Do join us again next time on Playing With Reality.